Well, it is exciting to be here, and it's exciting on a baptism Sunday and just a lot going on. Let me start with this. Billy's not here. No, she didn't leave me. I did. That's my wife for those that are visiting. I always have to say that because the people that know us well, anytime they see me without Billy at one of these, they go, ooh, what's wrong with Chuck and Billy, right? Nothing's wrong with Chuck and Billy. Billy's being a grandma right now. So she's in Virginia. What happened was before Easter on that Thursday, all four of our kids there were sick. And so let me just tell you, I haven't gotten this marriage thing down perfectly by any means, okay? I mean, a lot of guys like to brag about it, but let me just tell you, that ain't happening. So we're riding along, and she says, all the kids are sick. She's got it. She's talked to her son, our son, said, what do you think I need to do? Guys, here's a marriage tip. When your wife says, what do you think I need to do? She already knows. She's just asking for agreement. She doesn't need an opinion, Okay, (laughs) can I get an amen, all right? Why was it that all the ladies answered that and the guys just sat there? No, it's true, trust me. So I said, baby, you you know what you need to do and you know what you wanna do. And I've learned in the last few years trying to get this thing a little bit better in this husband thing that when my wife says she needs to do something that involves children, grandchildren, or people that are close to us, my job is to respond this way, baby, too easy. Give me an hour. I'll have it worked out. What do you think I said in the car? Baby, too easy. Give me an hour. I'll have the flights. We got this thing taken care of. So right after Easter, last Sunday, she flew off to take care of some sick kids. She's doing great. They're doing much better when grandma's on the scene, believe me. Second thing I want to tell you is I'm going to get to go see him next weekend. And I tell you that because I really want to encourage you. We've got a gentleman that's going to come and preach share the word powerfully next Sunday. His um, name is Pastor Isaac Oliveras. He's a very good friend of mine. His wife, Jamie, together as a team, they have led for many, many years, and this church has supported them, ministering to the homeless, feeding them, bringing them the word, everything in downtown Denver and urban outreach. Isaac will tell you a little more of his story and Jamie's, but he's actually leaving at the end of August to go to Cambridge, where he has been accepted to pursue his PhD in biblical studies. And then Jamie's going to help finish some schooling in the fall and take the whole family and move there. Remarkable family, but we are so blessed that he would be available and would be speaking for us next week. And I want to tell you this, you know, if you look at the calendar and say, you know, it's kind of busy, we could miss this Sunday. Hey, if you're going to miss a Sunday, miss one while I'm speaking. But don't miss Isaac Oliveras next week, or you're going to miss something very, very special. And invite a friend to come with you on it, because I'm sure they're going to be blessed in that process. For the last three weeks, as we started on Palm Sunday, we've been focusing on the encountering the cross. We talked about at the very beginning that discovering that hope of the cross, and then last week embracing the power of the cross. And this week, the title of our message is to experience the grace of the cross. And I want to tell you as we do this that when we use that word grace, sometimes uh, it's too easy to talk about grace and create a cheap grace. You know, God knows me, you know, and I I just need to pray and God will give me His grace. And, you know, everything gets pretty good and pretty easy. 
But you know, what we're going to talk about today is there's some steps to that grace, to the power of that grace, what God intended for the grace, what Jesus died on a cross, the grace that he died for us there. And so the big idea for today is very simple in a sense, grace from a loving father. You know, I could have put God there, but let's get real and talk about this is a loving father for each one of us. That grace from a loving father must begin with some actions on our part. It's got to start with us. And I, I'm convinced that the reason so many people may talk about grace, but if you ask them about the experiencing of grace, they miss it. And they miss it because there's some requirements, I think. There's some things that God has spoken to us very clearly that involve us taking an action on that. And so when we want to experience the grace of the cross and the power of that, then we've got to understand where God's position. Many people have said mercy is when you get, is when you do not get what you deserve. Just stop right there. Mercy is when we didn't have to die on a cross like that because he did it for us. But let's understand something. Jesus didn't deserve that. Chuck Stecker did. Chuck Stecker deserved a death like that for what he's done, for the sin in his life. But Jesus didn't deserve it. You know what the mercy was? I didn't get what I deserve. God took care of that for me with his only son. But then there's grace. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve. I'm living a life I don't deserve by the grace of God because of the mercy he extended to me. And I want to walk through how we get to that grace because when we miss the power of that grace, that's that great adventure we're missing is in that grace that God has for us there. So when we look at this, I'm going to ask you one question that's kind of our overall question for today. There's going to be some questions along the way, but I want to ask you one question, and I want this question to kind of seep in. I want it to soak in throughout this entire time and even through our response time. I want this to be soaking on you. Where am I at today, Lord? Where am I at today? I'm going to present some things along the way, and the question is going to be, is that where I'm at? Where am I at today? And I think it's important that we know where we're at because the first step to getting unlost when you're lost is knowing where you're at, which will tell you what direction to move and some things like that. You understand? So throughout this, we're going to talk about this, and we're going to ask that question, Lord, where am I at? And, you know, one of the things here at Summit, and I, I've told you a great friend of mine, but it's the idea that, you know, I, I don't have this expectation that I'm smart enough to give you a lot of answers. What I hope to do what my prayer is, and my prayer at 5 o'clock this morning when I was praying, and I'm pretty consistent with it because I'm not that creative, is that, God, please allow me and help me create a safe place so our church family can ask the questions that only God can answer for them. You know, the answer you need doesn't come from me. The answer you need is when you have the courage with a trusting God to ask Him the question, that he can answer for you. That's where the real answers are, aren't they? So, you know, a lot of times it's kind of like talking to my wife in a sense when she says, what do you think I need to do? And I said, you know, I think you already know. And I'm just supposed to say, what? What's the answer, men? 
Too easy. Give me an hour. For some of you men, if that's the only thing you take out of here for your marriage, you need to take that out of here. And then you'll save the 43 years of marriage where I didn't have that answer and I wasn't that smart, right? Just too easy. Just give me an hour on that. But let's start with a foundation on this because you say, well, there's some things that we need to know as a prerequisite. Let's start in the book of Romans. Romans 1.20, and I'm very partial to the book of Romans because God kind of beat this into me for two years when our family lived in Rome. And I walked the streets and the things like that, so forth. But he says this to us, the writer, and he's talking to the Romans. He said, for his invisible attributes. Let's just start with the word his right there for a beginning. His, triune Godhead, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. That's who his is that the writer is referring to here, that God is guiding us to. For God's invisible attributes, that is his, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world. And then he says, being understood through what he has made, here it is, as a result, because of all of that, people are without excuse. And we've talked about this on several other occasions. The biggest problem that we have with those that call us, that we call as, say, a follower of Christ ourselves is it's not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Come on, folks. That's not the issue. We don't sit and ponder every morning and look at our day and go, gee, I wonder if it'd be okay to steal something. I wonder if it'd be okay to lie to somebody. I'd wonder if it'd be okay to hurt my wife or my kids or be mean to... No, we don't wake up with those questions because we know the truth. Our issue is, is throughout the day when we're confronted with circumstances and issues, is what are we going to do about it? And it boils down to two things, or one thing, obedience or disobedience. We're either going to be obedient to God's Word, we're going to be obedient to what God has called us to, we're going to be obedient as a son and daughter of the king, or we're going to be disobedient and do what we want to do and say that was a lot more fun when it really wasn't. You with me on that? So it's the issue of obedience. But what God says is in knowing all of that, the reality of it is doesn't matter. You're without excuse. And that we can't say as we've done something, most of the time we know in our heart when it was right or wrong, we can't get through and make an excuse and go, well, you know, I just didn't know for sure. You mean you're telling me now that was wrong? No, God told you that before you started. You knew the truth. Every one of us and Chuck Stecker does. Now, let's get away from the idea that in knowing Christ, we should be perfect and we're going to walk through this process to grace. But you understand what his goal is, is for us to understand first, we don't have any excuses on this. So we're going to walk through this process, and I want to take you through several things here. And the first step of this, when we get to this idea, is conviction. And this idea of conviction is different, because without a conviction of something, there's no need for grace. Remember we said grace is when He gives you something you don't deserve, right? We talked about mercy is when He doesn't give you what you do. Well, if we don't have an understanding of what some of those things are, what do you need grace for? Your life is perfect. There's no need for grace for someone that doesn't have the conviction. Now, let's talk about what conviction is. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit grabs you so hard that you cannot do anything else. But let me tell you, if you think you have conviction but you don't act on it, what you just have is what the world would call a little bit of a guilty conscience. 
It doesn't become conviction till you act on it, till you make a decision to do something with it. God tells us in His Word, and He says in John 16, 8, and again, I love it because God says, when He, and He tries to down this place of this almighty God's, you know, and He's saying, He, because Jesus walked among us, the Spirit was brought to us, the Holy Spirit, as a counselor, as an advocate to us, okay? So when He, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is with us, He comes, here's what He says, He will convict. And when He says the world, He's talking about the people in it. He's not talking about the material things. He's not coming to convict the chairs. He's coming to convict us who sit in the chairs. But that's what He comes for, is that peace. That conviction there. And you know, it's interesting with conviction. It, uh, <laughs> I talked to my son last night, and look, he watches these. <clears throat> so I'm going to get stuck on this. But one of the greatest lessons about the Holy Spirit was taught to me by my son when he was pastoring down Louisiana. And we're sitting having one of our conversations. And, you know, it's interesting. It wasn't one of those defining moments where he, you know, stood up, stomped on the floor. We're just sitting there having a cup of coffee. And he goes, you know, Dad, the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit is conviction. The greatest gift of the Holy Spirit is conviction. And because when that conviction comes, God means that to move us into an action that's going to result in this powerful thing we call grace from a loving God who is just. It's got to start with conviction. So he'll hear that. Thank you, Chad. Yes, I do quote you, my son. Okay. So the first thing there is that conviction. But what do you do with that, right? And so forth. And, you know, what Jesus told his disciples in this thing on the conviction is, when you look at John 14, 26, you know, there's a reason for that. He says, ask and I will ask the Father, Jesus, red letter on this, and He will give you a counselor. The word there means advocate, Holy Spirit. That's what God's saying. I call Him my life coach. I know that may sound not appropriate for some of you, but this is the person that walks with me in my mind. This is, okay, Chuck, let's walk through this. You know, and if you know a lot about coaching and mentoring, it has a lot less to do with telling you what to do than drawing it out because you know what to do, right? And that's that part of it. And so it's this idea there that Jesus says, look, don't leave. And he's telling them in the, in the upper room, don't leave where you're at because I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit is with you, going to walk with you. You will understand these things so clearly. But what is that supposed to lead to? So we get conviction, all right? And you got to ask yourself first before we do this is, what's God convicting you of that you haven't acted on? As I was preparing this, and I went through these notes several times because I had to identify each page what I was saying to myself, what's God convicted you of that you haven't acted on? Because to yet act on it, it's not conviction. So what's the second step of this then? Step number two is simply this, confession. You see, when conviction comes, it should lead us to confession. God speaks to this, that we've got to speak this out and confess. This isn't a thing where we just say, God knows what I'm doing and He's forgiven me. You know, I did that once, and I asked Jesus into my life, and maybe I got baptized or something. I took care of that. So anything I do wrong from now on, God understands that, and He forgives me for that. Oh, no. 
Is that how you would want your kids to act? Is that how you acted as a child? You know, mom, dad, I wrecked the car again, but you forgave me the first time, so that should cover me the second. I don't need to ask for forgiveness on that. You know what I'm saying? No. It's a continuous process in life, isn't it, that enriches our life with a loving, with the relationship with the loving God is this issue of confession. And so what God's calling us to is confess first to Him. And then I will tell you, very often it requires us to confess to another person. That issue of confession God speaks to for us, we look at this thing and we go to 1 John 1, 9. And this is a great scripture here because if we get the first three words down, it enables us to understand the other. But if we skip the first three words on this, we miss what God is telling us here. If we confess, we can get to our sins, yes, but let's just start with this first part. If we confess. You see, God, a lot of what God does is He's ready to do it, but it's predicated upon us moving forward and making a decision and doing something. And if we confess, right, then what is He? Oh, He's faithful and He's just to forgive us of our sins. And this says, this version here, CSB says, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, you know, I, I love one of the other translations, and I'll end up with about four Bibles out there and kind of, but the ones that say, He purifies us. You get that? God, if we confess our sin, He's faithful to restore purity to us. That's huge, isn't it? And I think about, as I, I've talked to a bunch of young kids and young people, and they've lost purity in their life. And I said, you know what the really cool thing is? God is a restorer of purity. There's a bunch of us in this room that lived a good part of our life, perhaps, having lost purity in an area of our life, physically, mentally, spiritually, we've lost purity. Satan wants us to hang on to that, and God restores purity. That's the faithful God and the just God. That's the cross. That's the cross, is restoring the purity. And that's in John 1-9 there as we look at that. So we've got to confess that. That's important to us in the process. So now I ask you the question, convicted? Sure. Are you taking action? What is there that you haven't confessed to God? Now let me talk to you about this issue of confession. God calls us in Galatians and other places, but specifically there, to live as children of light. And let me tell you where Chuck Steckers landed on this. And as your pastor, I want you to understand, everything that's in the light, Satan has no power over. That that's in the darkness, Satan controls it. And he wants it kept there. He wants us to hide things. I, uh, I've shared many things with you about my life, and I'll just... If you're new here, you may not know this friends that I've known for years and years now. Both Billy and I were married before. I made some terrible mistakes. God calls them sin. I was an alcoholic for a good part of my life. My last drink was August of 1986. I shared earlier, and I shared, I remember the evening starting. I remember going to the officer's club at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. I don't remember coming home. A good friend took my keys left my car, brought me home. I don't remember going home. I did get up the next day and go to class. 
walked, got my car, came back. My wife, mother of two young boys, sitting with her head in her hands, just in despair. I sat down in a chair, and I sat there I don't know how long. And I said, I'm not ready to talk about it, but that'll be the last time I drink. I had quit drinking on several other occasions. She didn't have a lot of hope. But she loved me enough to give me one more chance. That was the last time I ever drank. People say, guys, Chuck, what did you do? And I have to tell them I didn't do anything. And people around me say, you have to go through this or have to go through that. You can't do this on your own. I said, didn't do it on my own. But I reached a point there. God took that taste away from me, and I've never had a drink since. But that's not my point. This isn't an AA meeting. What this is to tell you is, is that you know that about me. If somebody then walks up to you and says, tell me about Summit Church, you go, well, you know, we've got this church, and we got this teaching pastor. His name's Chuck Stecker. It's amazing. Sometimes people go, oh, I know, right? And I've told you stories, but... And then he says to you, oh, by the way, Michael Laurie, did you know Chuck and Billy were divorced and he abandoned his wife and a daughter? I mean, yeah, they've reconciled and God's done great things. By the way, her birthday's tomorrow and I get to take her to dinner tonight. But go to Mike and Lori and go to Carrie and Lucky, right? Come over to Chloe and ask her. You know, you know about this guy that's actually the teaching pastor there and all the things that he does and where he's been? Well, frankly, you can say, yeah, we do know those things. And the moment they're brought into the light, confessed, right? Satan doesn't have any power over those, does he? But if they were to say things to you about me that I hadn't confessed, and and you heard those for the first time and you're a deer in the headlights, Satan has control over that that we seek to contain in the darkness and we hide from everything. But once we confess it, God, I think, takes the power away from Satan and he has nothing to say. And so that issue of, that issue is, so what is it that you haven't confessed first to God? What's God convicted yet, but there's been no confession? Now let's take step three. Step three is repentance. I've shared with you a couple of times, you know, the word repentance really comes from the word repent, which means turn and go the other way. And very often, this is a step that's missed on the way to the power of the grace that God's given us on the cross, is this idea, well, I've confessed it. You know, I've been convicted. I've, I've confessed it. Well, the real question is, have you decided to stop doing it? That's really the issue, isn't it? You know, I treated my wife poorly, and I confessed it. What more do you want? I'll tell you what I want. Quit doing it. It's wrong. It breaks God's heart. But you see, it's this idea that the word repent really means I'm going in one direction saying I know where I want to go, I know what I want to do, why I want to get there, but I'm going in the wrong direction. I use the example of, you know, you were going along the road saying I want to go to Jerusalem, but you weren't sure, so you asked somebody for directions. Now let's pause. I know and you know, if you're traveling on the road to Jerusalem and you stop and ask for directions, guys, your wife is with you. Why is it it's just the women that laughed at that, okay? Guys go, no, I I would do that on my own. Yeah, okay, fine. Lightning comes, we're all going. Okay, but the idea is, as he says, no, you're not going in the right direction for where you say you want to go. So the word repent, repentance that God calls us to means 
I'm not happy going in the direction I'm going because that direction's not honoring God. And I said I wanted to honor God. That means repent. You know, in the simplest forms, I was driving along yesterday and said, we got a, our daughter, her birthday's tomorrow. I think she told me she's 39 again. But that's okay. She can do that. Men can't, but she can but I called Billy and I said, Billy, here's what I'm thinking in terms of just the gift. And Billy was gone and I'm trying to catch up on everything. Billy said, that'd be great. And I told her in the car and she says, go do that. That's a great idea. Guys, don't miss those moments when your wife says that. Can I give you a little amen on that? So I said, here's what I told my wife. I says, I have to repent. I'm going in the wrong direction. I have to turn around, which I did at the next intersection, to go where I wanted to go. But here's the point on this thing. We can oversimplify it, but you know, the fact of the matter is, God is calling us to repentance. What does God say in the Scriptures on this? Okay, when we look at this, Peter is speaking in, in Acts 2.38, right? And Peter replied, get this, and I love this Scripture for this Sunday because we see the tank, repent and be baptized, each of you. You know, he's not saying take this group and do it and go down. He's saying each of you. How about we start with Chuck Stecker? See, when, he re- when I read this Scripture to you, that's got to be the first meaning is to me. Repent turn around, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And what does he say? Repent for the forgiveness. See what repent leads to? The forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? And that's what he's telling them there. Another scripture God tells us here in Mark 6, 12, and he says, so they went out and proclaimed that people should what? Why don't we just say this together? Last word on three. One, two, three, It's right out of God's Word. And the one thing I love about God's Word is, you know, I know we don't take one Scripture here and one Scripture there. There's nothing in your life that I want to beat you up about. I can't find one Scripture. By the way, you could do the same to me. But that's why we say at Summit Church, let's use the whole book. It's really a good book. It's actually 66. But the reality of it is, is that let's use it in context as we walk through these together, and that's important. So God tells us to repent there. But here's the other Scripture that I love on this, 319 in Acts, and there's what He says, therefore, repent, there's our word there, turn back, see what it says, repent, turn around and go the other direction with your life, okay, so that your sins may be wiped out. You know, I told you when we read the other about purify, cleanse, that, Add to your list of what God does with those sins. And I like this. It's got kind of a tougher sound. Wipe it out. That's what Satan wants to keep in you. That's what God wants to do in you, is God wants to wipe it out. Just wipe it out. Come on. You see? And so that he tells us this, but that's that repentance, that with that repentance, we turn and go the other way. And Satan, you know, he's sitting there, and he's in absolute horror watching because he knows what's going to happen because God's Word says when you repent and turn and go the other way, God's going to wipe it out. And that's a powerful thing for us, isn't it? So when we look back, now here's the question. I said, where are you at today? We've talked about conviction. We've talked about confession. But now as we talk about repentance, what are things in your life that you're allowing yourself to do? And you go, you know, I'm it's okay, I'll do it. Remember the Apostle Paul wrote, and he says, people say, should I sin more to receive more of God's grace? And he said, oh, absolutely not. But sometimes we allow that, don't we? We know that God's forgiven us, and we repent, and we know when it happens again, because we anticipate that it will, 
because we've already allowed it to be said into our life that we're going to do this again, but that's okay because, you know, we'll go through this and repent again, right? And that God is saying to us, you know, repent. What is there in your life? The question here is that you need to stop, that you need to stop. And it's clear when we look at those words there and what he's saying that those are wiped out, we get this thing right. Now we kind of hit a transition point because here's step four. Step four on this is very simple. It's a word called forgiveness. You know, when we walk through and God has convicted us, right, we've confessed it, we've repentance. Well, it was that Scripture that said, you know, when you repent, what does God do with that, right? Well, God says it follows. Let's look back at this at First John 1, 9 again, right? He says this, if we confess our sins. Remember, we started off and we looked at if we, right, confess our sins. He is faithful and just to do what? Forgive us. You see, that process that comes through the conviction and the confession, the repentance, turn and go. But where is He leading us to? He's leading us to the forgiveness of sins. And here's this, cleanse us, wipe it out, purify us. That's what God wants to do in that process for us. He goes on in another Scripture in 2 Chronicles 7.14. 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a powerful Scripture. It's used National Day of Prayer. This is their guiding Scripture that they use. We use it all the time in our prayer, but let's get context. Let's read this, and let's get some context with it. It says, and by the way, it says, and my people, that's a, this version here, the majority of them translation is, if my people. Okay? That, that transition, if my people now who bear my name call themselves sons and daughters of the King, followers of Jesus Christ, who bear my name, if they humble themselves, if they pray, and if they seek my face, and they turn from their evil ways, then I will hear them from heaven, right? And I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now, here comes the context in this that we've got to get. Solomon had just built the temple. Now, let's give you a David was not allowed to build the temple. God called him a man of war, which he was. There was great sin in his life, which there was. But yet still, by the way, before you get off on a tangent, he was still called a man after God's own heart, wasn't he? But here's this. He was told, you're not going to build the temple. But he said, God told him, here's what I want you to do. Get all the resources. Bring in the cedars, the timbers. Bring in everything we need. Because one after you is going to build the temple. And that's exactly what happened. Solomon, declared by some to be the wisest man in the world, builds the temple. The temple has been built. They're celebrating. They're blessing and, you know, consecrating this to God. Now let's back up on the Scriptures and see what God says on this when He gets to that. And He says this. You ready? I have heard your prayer. The prayer was the prayer of dedication of the temple. That's what He's saying. Solomon has given now the prayer of dedication, consecration of the temple. And God says, I've heard your prayer. I kind of go back to when he created the world. You know, when he, every day he would say, and it was good, right? I kind of insert that in there as I read this. I have heard your prayer. Oh, and it was good. 
You see, what God is saying to Solomon here, and have chosen this place myself as a temple of sacrifice. This is going to be it right here. It's what God's saying. So He's saying it's good, and this is what I've chosen myself right there. But now listen to what God says to him. He says, and if I shut the sky so there is no rain, or if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, if I send a pestilence on my people, then, this is where the if my people, now we get to this verse, and then if my people who bear my name, that all of this has happened to, will humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I'm going to hear them from heaven and I'm going to forgive their sin. I'm going to heal the land. And you know what God was saying is, you know what? You got this thing right, but we're an imperfect people in an imperfect land and bad things are going to happen. And when that happens, right, God will be responsive, forgive our sin and heal their land. And verse 15 goes on to say, my eyes now will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer from this place. Several years ago, I was preaching a message, and Billy and I talked about it, and she said, you know, she wasn't real happy with the message, and the message was going to the book of Job. In the book of Job, if you remember, it was God that said to Satan, when Satan said, of course they'll worship you. He gave you, you made him a rich, rich man. He's got everything. Why wouldn't he worship you? And you remember, God said, okay, you can take all of that away. You just can't touch him. And Job still worshiped him. He lost everything. And he says, you can do anything to Job now, but you can't kill him. Sores on his body and all that. And there's all of this stuff that goes on, right? And I was talking about Job, and I said to everyone, I said, I don't want anything to happen to my family. I don't want anything to happen to my wife and my kids, my grandkids. I don't want anything to happen to our family. I was at 9 o'clock service. I was sitting there, and Jordan and Jamie were sitting right there. And you remember a few months, a few weeks ago, they were in this just incredible car accident that turned their little car into an accordion, and they walked out of it. Well, he found out this week his shoulder, the muscles are torn there, and his elbows broke. But he's walking. He's alive. But when I got that news, I literally teared up. It's my family. I don't want anything to happen to my family, but here's what I do want to know. I want God to know that if He allows it to happen, in a fallen world, that I'll still worship Him. I'm not going to turn around. I'm not going to stop. And I said, and I told Billy, I said, I don't want anything to happen to our family. I look at all of you, and it's so good to see so many your faces, and I'm getting to know you. And we're, going, I don't want anything to happen to you and your family. But I want God to know. If it happens, and all the things he, he said there in the land, I want to know that I'm not going to turn my back. And you know what else I want to know? I want to know I've done everything I can possibly do as your pastor to help you, no matter what happens, not turn your back, but know that God has called us to worship a faithful God who is just and can be trusted. So that's the fourth step, is that 
and that God, upon doing that, will forgive us. I just want to throw one thing in, and that is sometimes the toughest forgiveness is not asking God to forgive us, but to forgive ourselves. As a guy that wrestled with that for a lot of years, boy, that's a tough one. But God wants us to come through that just as well. I want to take you to step five and six now together. Step five and six is mercy and grace. You see where after that forgiveness, now it's the time for the mercy and grace. And when you've gone through conviction and confession and repentance, and you've experienced the forgiveness, God takes you to the mercy where he doesn't give you what you deserve. And he gives you the grace where he gives you what you don't deserve. And I'm telling you, as you walk through that process and it's cyclical in nature, we've got to keep doing that. There's nothing cheap about that grace. And that is the most powerful grace that you can experience in your life is the grace that is given by a loving God because it started over here first with that conviction in your heart. And that first step, you chose to act on that conviction and make it conviction by taking action to go to the next step. You know that uh, in Hebrews 4, 16, get this, he says, therefore let us approach the throne of grace. We read about the throne of judgment. We read about the, th- but when I get to this and I realize that in that forgiveness, I go from the throne of judgment because that's been taken care of and God brings me to the throne of grace. And again, there's nothing cheap about that grace, is there? And God requires us, I think, to continue this. And then he says this, with boldness, so we may receive, what? Mercy and find. I change that to experience the grace of the cross to help us in time of need. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace. And you say, after I've done this with confession and repentance and that, now we go with boldness? Oh, yeah, you go with boldness. If you got to say God said, remember, step four, it's forgiven. Be bold. Approach the, gro- the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and experience the grace of the cross to help us in time of need, which for me is only on the days ending in Y, starting from when I wake up till I go to sleep. That's the only time I need grace and mercy. We go through this and very quickly, it's just these three steps to start with. Let's just get it right. Conviction should lead to confession and result in repentance. Then as a result, we will receive forgiveness we will receive mercy and we can experience the grace of the cross. So where are you at today? What is God doing with you? How do you need to respond in that? Let me just tell you how we're going to continue in our service. In just a second, I'm just gonna pray and my prayer is going to be, God speaks to your heart because there's nothing more important today than you responding to what God is speaking to you. Most important thing. After I pray, I'm going to come back and let me just tell you how we respond here. We have the cross. Prayers are there. There's communion, prayer team. They're there every Sunday for us. 
and they're going to be every there Sunday for us to respond. But as you can tell by the tank, when our worship team comes up, they're going to lead us in one of our response psalms. I'll tell you again, I know Colin's ready. I know John's ready. You don't have to get up yet, I'll tell you. You'll see me move, then you move. But it's to be here for the baptism as we walk through that again as a family. So I'm going to encourage you, and our team's going to encourage you, that after the baptism, you're free, and if you want to do it during the first song, particularly after the baptism, do what God places on your heart to respond to what God is telling you. The cross, communion, prayer. Seek Him. He's ready for you. I know this to be true. Father, we thank you and we love you, Lord, and we praise you. Father, we come and we ask you to just stir in us. Speak to each one of us. Father, you know the exact point of need that brought us here. You know everything about us. Whether it's that conviction or confession or repentance, whether it's to experience forgiveness and mercy, experience the grace of the cross. But Father, you know where every single person is at, me included, right now in this room. Father, would you give us the courage that at the appropriate time to respond to what you've called us to do in response to your spirit speaking to us. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all of God's family said, Amen. We're going to go get changed now. Our worship team, would you stand, please? Join in in worship. And no, they're not here to perform for you. They're here to guide you into the process to the throne of grace. That's what this is about. Colin, John, now's the time.